Tēnā koutou katoa, everyone, and welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey from the Kaka, and in very close proximity, but not in the same place to avoid nasty feedback, we have Peter Bale. In, in, his, own, in his own garden. Yeah, That's right. With the Tuis. With the Tuis. I mean, I'm basically in Zealandia, but not in Wellington. It's amazing. This urban bird life is just taking over our cities, and it's the best possible thing. It really yeah, well, is. apparently, apparently, you know, um, Patrick Smelly was tweeting the other day about Kaka taking over the back of his house in uh, Karori, and I thought it was a, a sort of subtle promotion for you. Well, I'll take it, and I haven't paid him, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> and, and I like to think of the Kaka as one of these comeback birds. You know, one of these rare things that swoops around over Parliament every now and again, and there's more and more of them. That's mm. that's my that's my mm. vibe. Yeah, well, I'm uh, very keen on I'm very keen on P Waka Waka as well. Although mm. um, uh, um, Mary Ellen, the person that we a person that we both know, was telling me she went to a party in her her house in Parnell, and mentioned the word P Waka Waka, and one of the one of the people in the party said, "Oh, I don't know what that is." <laughs> You know, of course, he bloody knows what it is, but he just yeah. doesn't want to use it. Exactly. But perhaps he perhaps he calls it a, a tui, a parson bird. Parson's bird, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, how how the use of the language has changed over the years. And I think um, the more and more of them we see, the more often we're going to use the correct name. That's uh, right. That's right. P. Walker Walker. They're cheeky little buggers, aren't they? They're what? Cheeky little buggers? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I love them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 No, they're great. Messenger, no, but... messenger birds. Is that what they? Oh. They were called messenger birds, I think, as well. Okay. Anyway, enough en enough uh, enough uh, uh, entomology, and on with etymology. The love of yes. words here on the Kaka. Mm. Uh, this week we've of course got Robert Patman, Professor Robert Patman from the University of Otago, who will be joining us at five fifteen. But um, to start off with, uh, I thought. Uh, Peter, we could spend some time on Sri Lanka. You've done a fantastic job in this week's uh, Weekly World Bottle Bulletin on uh, uh, via the spin-off, uh, which I'll call up um, uh, here, which is which has a, had a really good look at what's happening in Sri Lanka, where this week a couple of the Rajapaksas um, bailed and left the country. Basil, Basil, Gopo, Basil GoPro, his, his, his camera-wielding <laughs> brother GoPro, and uh, and Mahinda. Well, I, don't, I, I still don't actually know where Mahinda is because Mahinda's the rotter in this piece. Um, the, the president is the one who was the Minister of Defence who wiped out the, uh, or Secretary for State for Defence, who wiped out the Tamil Tigers in that extraordinary, if you remember, I think 100,000 people killed on that beach. Um, you know, no one ever really knows. And, no, and, and yet again, as, as the world is um, drawing a blind eye on the Sri Lankan crisis, the world turned a blind eye to Sri Lanka or to the Sinhalese government effectively sorting out the Tamil tiger problem once and forever, as far as they were concerned. So it's a very interesting dilemma. And I, I did put the Tamil tigers into that story because I don't think you can really look at Sri Lanka without understanding some of that historic um, ethnic uh, you know, problem, and that then causes them an, an ex a set of extraordinary problems with um, uh, with India, with, with particularly because of Ta Tamil Nadu state. So the Sri Lankan Navy is now patrolling the coastline to prevent um, potential guerrillas coming over from Tamil Nadu. And, and let's remember, this is also this is how um, uh, Sajiv Gandhi was uh, was was murdered by a Tamil. Oh, you know, this is right. this is a very complex set of problems. And Mahinda Mahinda Rajapaksa was saying only this week, and I suspect without much, um, I suspect without much uh, cause, 
that uh, he was detecting activity in the um, liberation tigers of Tamalilam, which is the correct name for the tigers. So, you know, it's it's it, the, you know this, these brothers wiped out the Tamil tigers, took power in you know gained gained democratically gained power in Sri Lanka, and have gone on to drive it into you know an unbelievable economic crisis. I mean, Sri Lanka's had this lingering problem of um, uh, very poor balance of payments, um, foreign debts, and so on. And of course, heavy, heavy dependence on foreign exchange related to tourism, which has been dead during COVID. And then they made a really weird mistake. Like, like, oh, yeah, the whole here, organic, organic. Farming. Yeah, well, people, people, people here, I mean, get it wrong. So my, my brother, who everybody know, knows, knows one of my brothers will know, you know, said to me, oh, Jesus Christ, this is all to do with Greenpeace. Greenpeace made them go organic. And so I looked up this and that is not entirely correct. In fact, it's not at all correct. The country did the Rajapak brothers did decide to push uh, Sri Lankan farming into an organic state, but they did it too fast and they did it inappropriately and they did it without thinking about how much fertilizer they used, whether whether organic fertilizer was available, and it also stuffed the uh, both the rice industry and the tea industry. So, you know, those are the two, two Sri Lanka, that's a little bit, funny enough, this kind of self-inflicted aspect is a little bit like Myanmar. You know, Myanmar was the was the uh, rice basket, rice bowl, if you like, of, of you know, it's part of Southeast Asia. Uh, it's a basket case rather than a, than a basket bowl. Um, and and the same thing is happening with Sri Lanka, in a sense. Uh, and now you've got this extraordinary breakdown of democracy to some extent. I mean, as as our friend uh, Dilipa Fonseca, who is, of course, um, of Sri Lankan origin, a New Zealander of Sri Lankan origin. And was on um, the hang uh, a few months ago talking yeah, about this. Yeah. He alerted us to this whole situation. So this, exactly. Well, he, you know, he's pointed out this is one of the oldest democracies in the world. It's it's generally very stable. Of course, it's had a 30-year civil war, but as, as, a, as a kind of political structure and political class, if you like, although I hate that phrase, um, you know, it's been relatively stable, but the Rajapaksas have buggered off, you know, um, the president got, went off to the Maldives, and of course, where was he in, ultimately going to go? To Dubai, to the UAE, yes. to his little little hideaway in the UAE, you know, a lot, same as, um, uh, you know, the, the former leaders of Pakistan, the former leaders of Afghanistan, um, you know, Dubai is an extraordinary hideaway for these people who tuck, tuck their ill-gotten gains there and just um, go yeah. and live, and live, live out their lives. And there's been a lot of Russian money that's turned up in those uh, Gulf states as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder too, you're right that the Rajapaksas and uh, Sri Lanka decided to end the civil conflict by essentially wiping out yeah. the, um, the Tamil Tigers and decided effectively not to have any sort of negotiated you know, somewhat peaceful solution where no. a deal was done. And and it's cost them in the end because by doing that, um, they were never able to team up with India and, and it forced them into the arms of China for capital and help. And the biggest creditors for Sri Lanka at the moment are China. And it mm. looks like China is, going, is the key player in deciding, you know, how the bailout or the restructuring is going to happen. Uh, China is obviously um, the big player in the building of that port on the mm. coast where the Tamil Tiger um, uh, war happened. And of course, as we've discovered now, once the port went bankrupt and, it was, hand and it was handed back mm. into the control of China, it turns out, of course, it's an incredibly strategic place. Yes, well, it's a, critical, it's a critical element in, the, in what's known as the, as the string of pearls. The kind of you know, and and China, as we've discussed so many times, has a long-term strategic objective here. 
Um, it's bound Sri Lanka very deeply into the Belt and Road project and you know everything in the Belt and Road, Road project in a sense is dual use or triple use. It's diplomatic, it's economic and of course has potential military use. So you've got Cameron Bay in, um, in Vietnam, you've got the new um, Cambodian um, shipping port which is uh, allegedly also a naval base and you've got um, the, the, the basin or the, the shipping port in, in Sri Lanka. Um, so it, China has said very, very little about this, of course, this crisis there. Um, the other thing that was wonderful about it was when the when the public took over the presidential palace the other day, um, uh, you know, people back flipping into the pool, you know, sitting in the chairs and everything. But of course, they went back and cruised later just to tidy it up. So it was very, very well mannered in, in, in reality. Yeah, I mean, those amazing pictures of people's um, mm rushing up the steps it really was one of those classic the mob takes over and mm. um the the dictator you know leaves town in Ari, uh which we haven't seen anything like that for a while um and there were of course all of those uh revolutions in eastern europe and i think you went on to report the romanian one which was much uglier yes yes, yes including including the um the, the murder of or the the shooting by firing squad of Nicholas Ceausescu and Berlana Ceausescu on um, on Christmas Day, mm. um, but yeah, that's that's drawing a feeling yeah, long bow with Sri Lanka. But, yeah. No, no, but it's it's interesting <laughs> that um, we have quite a few connections with Sri Lanka, not just in the sort of sporting sense, but um, it is a major market for Fonterra, and they've stayed mm. there throughout the process. And I see um, uh, there's been various calls for more help. And, and it occurs to me that Sri Lanka is one of those places with only, I didn't realize it was so lightly populated, only 22 million. Well, it's not a terribly large island though as well. Yeah. And um, it seems to be one of those places that is uh, are ripe or, or uh, lacking in development mm -hmm. and is primed for a you know a lot of tourism it seems like a really fertile yeah, place yeah. it should be able to you know come up with a really strong economy there if only it had the investments and the connections which it obviously lacks at the moment mm, mm. no and I, and I think the other thing critical thing bernard which one of the reasons why i led that uh spin-off piece on it is that we're going to see this kind of thing happen elsewhere i suspect you know you've got these ships at the moment trying to get into odessa to get um to get grain, they, they're uh, supposed to go up, up a canal in the into the Danube and then help, um, you know, get Ukrainian wheat out through Romania. But it's you know it's a tiny trickle of wheat compared to what what should be happening. And I you know although there are self-inflicted elements of this um, Sri Lankan crisis with the with the um, you know poor management um, and and this organic problem uh, or the, the cack-handed way they went organic these kinds of pressures where you've got um, dramatic increases in fuel prices, dramatic increases in food prices, or just fundamental unavailability of food is really dangerous. And it's exactly what Vladimir Putin is seeking to exploit by curbing that grain. And you do worry that this uh, big surge in the US dollar against emerging market mm. currencies, the combination of higher food prices, restrictions on exports of food from the likes of India, um, is going to flow over uh, into those more stressed economies with uh, emerging market, you know, debt crises very quickly, yeah, turning turning into political and social crises. One of these um, problems with not only the uh, the energy and um, you know geopolitical 
contest uh, problems, but climate change, um, it's really going to uh, change change things uh, there. Yeah, well, it's also been, a, it's, it, you know, we, we've seen from some of those opinion polls and some of that sort of global work on who's saying what, that the um, support for Ukraine is really very much a Western, a Western thing. Uh, it's, you know, it's Europe, it's, it's ANZUS type places, it's Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, it isn't uh, much of Africa and and much of the developing world and and certainly not much of um, South America where you have people who who have some respect for you know for the hard man Mr Putin. Oh Christ, we're we're stepping into Robert's um, uh, oh. patch. Sure, there he Robert. is, the prime. Sure. Great How to see you. Going? And you um and and great to um to read your piece in the New Zealand Health oh, this you. week uh, about the demise sort of uh, with a slight delay of. Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister. How do, how do you think that's going to affect us here? He he was on the face of it quite a fan of us for whatever reason, uh, and now that he's gone, are we going to have quite the the good relations that uh, gave us the free trade agreement? I, I don't think uh, Mr. Johnson's departure is going to necessarily significantly affect the relationship. It depends, of course, to some degree on who replaces him but the major contenders um um the vice the former vice chancellor um and liz trust the foreign secretary and um penny is it mordant penny mordant, mordant. The, the trade um, trade trade minister who apparently yeah, trade extremely minister. lazy according to her previous boss <laughs> yeah well she she may be a bit of a dark horse position we'll, we'll just have to see but they they actually share a lot of uh, johnson's policies and as I point, you know, pointed out in the piece, there's been sort of mock horror that Mr. Johnson's a liar by all three of these candidates. Mm. In fact, they knew that from the word <laughs> who could, go. Who could possibly have imagined such a thing? Hang on to, hang on to his coattails while it was working, particularly yeah. with his election victory. If only uh, which was based on lies, basically. Yeah. But the point being, I suppose that what I was trying to get across to that in the article is that there's been some things happening in the background which from a New Zealand point of view are quite disturbing. Mm. Uh, we have a deep um, commitment to a rules-based system. In fact, we want to strengthen it, which puts us at odds sometimes with the likes of the United States. And UK now is proposing to effectively uh, violate uh, the, the part of the EU exit agreement known as the Northern Ireland Protocols. Mm which safeguards the porous border put in place by the Good Friday Accord of 1998, which brought peace uh, to Northern Ireland. And the Biden administration has already strongly warned the Johnson administration there'll never be a free trade agreement with the United States when the Biden administration is in power if the, um, if, the, if the Johnson government went down that route or any other British government. But uh, as I say, I think, I think at the moment... Um, all the contenders for power in Britain are falling over themselves to take on Europe, to tear up the Northern Ireland protocols. Mm. And um, that is bad news for New Zealand. We, we can't be, you know, in a sense, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be present when the Prime Minister spoke last year in Wellington in July. And she gave a veiled a warning, I thought, to the British when she said that, that the she was speaking about how good it was to put together the comprehensive and trans uh, uh, comprehensive and progressive trans-Pacific partnership. Mm. 
which you know uh, thought had great future to it and um uh she indicated in her remarks that it had brought together with the help of japanese um support some of the highest standards in any multilateral uh, free trade agreement in the world and she said that we would not be watering down those standards to accommodate any new members so it'd be incumbent on new members to certainly show that they had conformed with the rules-based system and I, I i struck at the time i thought this was a bit of a polite veil mm. warning to the british if you're thinking about tearing up the northern ireland protocol well you better think again because that probably will disqualify you from being in the comprehensive and trans, uh, comprehensive and progressive trans-pacific partnership so you know th this the british um at the moment um seem to be um, hell-bent on isolating themselves internationally and they need to think very carefully about this quite jingoistic nationalistic mm -hmm. strain that's breaking out in British politics. Yeah and it's very interesting Robert the 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 criticism from at least three of the candidates and the, and the, the idea that we that the UK would leave the European Court of Human Rights oh, yeah. which of course has absolutely nothing to do with the European Union and was in fact largely founded at the initiative of Winston Churchill and in yeah. fact uh, Boris Johnson's um, uh, uncle, I think it was, was was one. No, his his uh, great his grandfather, his on his mother's side, was one of the progenitors of it. You know, this is a it's it's a very destructive kind of form of populism that that really does go to, as you say, to the rules based system. Yeah, and, 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 and it will be difficult for a New Zealand prime minister to endorse British membership mm. of um, the you know of the Trans Pacific Partnership if Britain is seen to break an international treaty of this magnitude, mm. particularly given the opposition of the United States to the British position. But we, we and also we have much wider interest to consider. We, we have a free trade agreement now with the EU. Um, in many respects, we're closer ideologically under this government to member, many of the leaders in the EU than we are to the present British government. Uh, let's be quite clear, whoever emerges from this will be no less far right than Boris Johnson and no less committed to the vision of what they call global Britain, mm. which is, you know, the really full of, I think, imperial Which is actually Little England, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, and of course, Britain does face the risk of breaking up. I mean, the, the oh, yeah. Scottish That's... secessionism and the fact that, you know, Mr. The Brexiteers may achieve what, the IRA couldn't, which is united Northern Ireland with mm. uh, the rest of Ireland. So I think this is a serious situation. The thing that really strikes me about the, watching the situation from here is that it, there's a lack of unreality. There's a un lack mm. of reality about the British place in the world. And it, it seemed to me that just watching the different contenders and listening to their speeches as they compete to replace Mr. Johnson, um, is that while they probably have more integrity than Mr. Johnson, which is not a difficult feat to achieve, mm. um, they seem to be just as delusional. It's just... like they're living in a bubble. And um, if, they, if they seriously think they can tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol and it doesn't have serious ramifications mm. to the United Kingdom, um, we, and let's be quite clear, they're delusional. Is country, which is economically um nosediving <clears throat> compared <throat> with its performance before brexit i wonder too if 
the um, this played into the Prime Minister's decision to uh, uh, do a deal with Europe, which wasn't exactly perfect, but made sure the deal was done mm. before, before things got worse. Given that um, our deal with the UK uh, is obviously dependent on the UK economy, which is performing very badly. My last uh, reading of it was that it was the second worst performing economy in the world after Russia mm. in the last mm. six months or so. And um, our need to ensure we had those connections into Europe um, before Europe has some sort of schism uh, with, with Britain. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that worries me, though, is that the opposition is completely paralysed. Because, uh, you know, you would think on the face of it, logically speaking, the, the opposition Labour Party, the major opposition in the UK, could now, they've been gifted a wonderful opportunity to say that your Brexit's not working and lead the opposition to it. But they can't because Nigel Starmer, sorry, Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer, yeah. That was a Freudian mistake. Yeah. <laughs> um, Keir Starmer, um, he backed... Um, which I thought was a tremendous strategic misjudgment, but he backed uh, Johnson's EU exit deal. So now he's paralysed on the issue because yeah. well, also he's also he's, he's, to it. he's he's said that they won't you know they won't be renegotiating Brexit as yeah, if, if they're he's in the come out with, the, with a fantasy he's going to make Brexit work better. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how that's going. Which to happen. was Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn's line, I think. And yeah. I, I mean. How you make shrink? Well, let's be quite clear about this. What is Brexit? It's the shrinking of Britain's tariff-free market mm. from 550 million people, which most countries will give their right arm to have, to 65 million only. Mm. Now, how you make that work better is going to require magic, I believe. So, I think I'd say to Mr. Well, there's certainly magical Palmer, thinking going with that on. Project. Yeah, yeah, no, plenty of magical thinking. Now, the other big um, event. The other big event this week is the Pacific Islands Forum, mm. where right on the verge of the start of the event, the Kiribati um, pulled out completely, and uh, and then everyone got together. What what's your impression of the initial results from the forum and how it went? Well, I haven't seen the final statement yet, Bernard, and so it, it looks reasonably promising. You know, they I think they gave there was a, a release in the media just before I came on. I checked it and. It seemed to say that there was going to be a statement, a whole range of things involving the right, the role of the U.S. and China in the in the region, as well as climate change and security. So it sounds like there's been some regional um, um, collective thinking here, but we'll have to wait and see on that. I, you know, the prime minister was interviewed and she seemed to think it was going reasonably well. Um, it was no doubt about it, though. Kiribati is not a, a failure to emerge was a significant and perhaps devastating mm. blow to the outcome and the interesting thing is that the opposition in Kiribati were absolutely convinced that China put pressure on Kiribati not to be present uh, we should say to our listeners that Kiribati like the Solomons signed uh, both they turned away from their diplomatic relationship with Taiwan in 2019 mm. just like the Solomons and just like the Solomons, they signed a deal in 2022 with China. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that um, we shouldn't, you know, in a sense, uh, there was, you know, Kiribati's 
absence was a bit of a blow. On the other hand, the United States has launched this very big aid initiative, um, which is really, and also pledged to open embassies in Kiribati and Tonga, mm. and also make sure that their embassy in, I know they had plans already to re-establish the embassy in Solomon. So there yeah. are interesting things happening, and you could say that the competition, geopolitical competition, between the United States and the US is hotting up. But I, I would personally... Between um, the United States, what, and China? You mean? And China. Yeah, sorry, United yeah. States, sorry, United States and yeah. China, I beg your pardon. But I would personally um, refrain from depicting the situation in Pacific Islands as in a sort of binary situation where all the Pacific Island states are simply the pawn of rivalry between the United States and China. Mm. I think that's incorrect. And I think middle and uh, smallish powers like New Zealand, uh, middle powers like Australia and uh, minor powers like New Zealand have a role to play. And I, I don't think the superpowers in this are going to have the final word. Already there's signs that a blowback coming towards China from the way they've um, conducted themselves in the region. In that whirlwind trip, uh, quite a few of the leaders, such as in Fiji, were not impressed by the way uh, the Chinese foreign minister wouldn't take questions. And we've learned, of course, during the course of the uh, this forum uh, that China had a couple of intelligence agencies, eject, intelligence agents ejected um, from the media set, uh, area in uh, the, the press gallery at the forum. So some interesting things going on there. Yeah. Well, um, I, what I can yeah. do also, Robert, is thoroughly recommend an extremely good piece of commentary in the North and South magazine this week uh, by oh, me. Right. Um, about oh, that the, about, is that a guy called Bale? Yeah, it is, Peter it is, Bale, yeah. It is, but but again, just to cover my cover my cover my myself, I talked to um, Dr. Iati Iati from uh, Victoria University, my and I talked to yes, he's and I talked to Anne Marie Brady. I, I decided that you were just so hideously overexposed by your constant appearances on the Hoon that um, I'd give you, give you a breather. But True, you know, I, th I think as a primer for what's or primer for what's really going on in the Pacific, um, I, I thoroughly recommend my own work to the to the lovely audience. <laughs> That's north uh, and south. And and I wonder too, um, Australia was very involved in the whole thing with Anthony Albanese uh, going along. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, an Australian Prime Minister declaring anywhere, uh, let alone the Pacific, that there was a climate emergency. I must say I'm a little tired of the whole climate emergency phrase because of the way it's been used and abused for performative purposes mm. uh, without being followed up. But still, when Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister of Australia, um, stands up and says there is a climate emergency, mm. um, it's sort of interesting uh, and certainly grab the attention of the Australians who aren't, who aren't used to being told there's a climate emergency. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, in a sense, Australia has moved closer to the position that's been, I think, articulated by Jacinda Ardern's government for some time, that, that climate change is really the major issue facing the Pacific Island states. And if the likes of Australia and New Zealand, as well as the United States, can't actually tackle this issue, then they're playing into the hands of uh, geopolitical rivals, such as China. And, and I, I do I wonder, think, I think Australia shifted in that direction. I do wonder whether the sort of heavy-handed nature of um, China's visit recently mm. has actually served served a purpose, and mm. that a it, it got the Americans' attention. So suddenly, yeah. they were they're keen to actually get involved in the Pacific and spend some money, and it also got the Australians um, very focused. You know, suddenly 
the potential for China to have some sort of military, however limited or, or not it is, military presence in the Solomons or elsewhere, really has focused the Australian attention mm. on uh, part of the world which it often turns its back to. It either looks straight up north to Asia or or looks over their heads to America. And I, I, um, I wonder whether now is a time for, particularly at this moment of intense labour shortages, whether now is the time for Australia and New Zealand to try to uh, offer an olive branch, a labour movement off of olive branch to the Pacific, in which um, workers from the Pacific can come and go in a Schengen style arrangement to Australia and New Zealand, and uh, get some of that Australia and New Zealand cash back into the Pacific mm. and solve some labour shortages that we, we both now have. Yeah, it's a really interesting suggestion that, you know, I don't know what Peter feels about this, but I think it would, you know, it, it would be not only practical in the short term for New Zealand and the Pacific Island states, but it looks politically shrewd to me. It looks like something that uh, could, you know, in a sense, overcome some of the frustrations that have been caused by COVID. Uh, and yes. the fact that, you know, the Pacific community have been hit very hard, particularly you know, um, there's been that reduction of funds that have been flowing from New Zealand mm -hmm. back to the Pacific. And that might be a way of getting that situation rectified to some degree. I think more generally, that question of immigration in New Zealand is so interesting. I, I really don't understand quite where government policy sits on and why, where it, why it sits on immigration the way it does. You know, this question of the nurses when we have clearly a desperate need and then we say, but they're not the same as doctors. Doctors won't move into other jobs. Would nurses really? I mean, what I just I, I feel as though there's some underlying question about immigration that we're not being told at the moment or not discussing adequately. This is a good topic. I'm keen to jump onto it. I know um, Robert has another commitment at 5:30. Mm. Jesus Christ! So. Is he going on with bloody? <laughs> oh no, he's got like a real. Going no, no, plunk, it's plunk uh, real work. With PhD students. So. <laughs> real, real actual work. So, yes, uh, Robert. Thank you so much for coming thank on. You. And talking about thank you. Really, nice really really Sorry, don't forget go. north and yeah. south. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do. All the best. Ah. Thank you. We're we're thank you. We're all journopreneurs here. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and um, you're actually right, you're very right, Peter, that the migration story has come to the centre stage this week. Uh, not only and it's come from unusual places. So often the, the debate in New Zealand is dominated by business interests, often small businesses, tourism, hospitality, farming, who are often asking for uh, permission to bring in as many migrants as they possibly can, in particular backpackers, giving them work rights, students, international students, giving them work rights, yeah. and the government pushing back in recent years because of the, the shock, really, of um, literally 2% uh, population growth, the fastest in the world for nearly a decade, mm. and intense pressure on our infrastructure going into, going into COVID, where we suddenly realised we were bringing in 100,000 people a year in mm. migration and creating a, a fertile ground for migrant abuse. And the fear, although it's since been um, discounted, the fear that it was repressing wages and effectively displacing mm. locals. That's the, the Labour um, government's fear that if you open the door and they come over here and that, take all of our jobs instead, uh, instead yeah. of coming over here doing all the jobs that we don't want and, and yeah. growing the economy. Well, 
but also repressing wages of everyone around them. That's the theory and the fear. Now, I spoke this week to the Productivity Commission's chair, Ganesh Nana, uh, uh, who have done a, um, a more than a year's worth of uh, study into the actual economic effect of the high migration we've had over the last decade. Did it actually mm. reduce wages? Did it actually displace New Zealanders? And does it actually either increase productivity or reduce productivity? Mm. And what I've found is that the um, the evidence isn't clear on pretty much any of those things. There are some sectors where it looks like it might have nudged wages down a bit. There are other sectors where productivity has actually improved a bit. And in fact, uh, employment has actually improved a bit in some sectors where mm -hmm. migrants have gone in, particularly those ones with connections to the rest of the world or particular skills. It might be IT skills or medical skills where they've actually helped to, you know, um, foster new employment and wage growth um, all around them. But it's clear from what the Productivity Commission is saying that if you pull the migration lever on its own, the risk is you create a congestion and inflation problem for asset prices, in particular house prices, congestion in transport, congestion in healthcare and in hospitals, which in the end is really damaging and destroys the social license that you have for migration. So uh, the Productivity Commission is saying, hey, if we're going to do migration, and you can if you want, it's not mm. fantastic, but it's not disastrous. If you do the migration, you must make sure you do the infrastructure at the same time. And it's proposed a government policy statement, effectively really an agreement between the political parties that will last for a long period mm. in which you say, okay, we can both pull the lever, but if we do it, we have to make sure we've built the railways and the motorways. Does, and the a, does a stadium in Christchurch count as infrastructure? Oh. That is a cracking story. This yeah. is a cracking story this week. I wish I'd been able to look at it more closely, but $650 million for a covered stadium? Well, we know it'll be nearly a billion by the time it's done as well. Yeah, yeah. I but mean, why is, is, I mean, is, is that not, un, is that unreasonable? I don't know, is it? Uh, is that an unreasonable it, amount of money for a, for a world-class stadium? Well, world-class, it's not going to be huge. We're talking, my understanding is um, 35,000 uh, people. It's only going to be filled at best two or three times a year when the mm -hmm. All Blacks play and maybe one or two of the Super Rugby games. Um, and uh, $650 million for a, a building that will be used and filled politically. Yeah, but Bernard, a lot more people are going to use it, would have used a biking, a, a carbon fiber biking bridge over the Harbour Bridge, wasn't they, in Auckland? That was wow. what the Harbour Bridge, that was what that was going to cost. Right? $650 million. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I must say that wasn't a fantastic idea. No, but it was $650 million in in Christchurch could be used to build a lot of infrastructure for housing, a lot of other um, things around, um, you know, parks, uh, cycleways, walkways, mm. um, those sorts of things, which in the long run will be used by more people and create more value. I, I'm surprised actually that the good ratepayers at Christchurch, and of course, when I say this, I say this as not being a Crusaders fan. I mm. suspect the whole rugby um, and Crusaders identity is a, such a thing for Christchurch it, it just wipes out the usual um, uh, the usual sensibleness of mm. making decisions about this mm. and risks becoming one of these um, Simpsons monorail moments <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Do, 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 do go on. So uh, there's a great episode of The Simpsons in which a huckster turns up in Springfield and um, sells the population, popular style, on a fantastic monorail for, for, for Springfield. And the, um, the masses 
year for the monorail mm. and the Huxter. They built a monorail, it failed, it's never used, lots of money is wasted, and um, there are recriminations at the end of the day. And uh, it actually, that episode of The Simpsons, I think, single-handedly destroyed the monorail industry globally. Yes, globally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I always remember the one in Sydney that Neville Rand put up. But Bernard, I, I was just noticing in our chat that Anne French, who I didn't, you know, who, who often writes me very nice emails about my um, spin-off thing each oh, week, cool. which is very kind of her. But she's saying that you're a genius and that she's going to give up her place on the top party um, uh, <laughs> policy committee and give it to you because of your Schengen idea. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to throw the ideas out there. I just don't want to be anywhere near a political party or have to do any sort of political stuff. I yeah, well, said, we do have to have Rafe, Rafe Manji come on our show at it? some point. Yes, no, no, that's on my um, list of things to do, particularly as we get closer to the election. I'm really yeah, keen and, to talk about And also noted that I'd, I'd pointed everybody towards um, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart's podcast, The Rest is Podcast, which I don't read, The Rest is Politics, which I don't want them to listen to instead of us, um, because we're, we're going to be, you know, launching this into a... Um, you know, yeah. the, rest, the rest is bollocks, or this is bollocks. Um, but it asked about, about whether Alistair's view that Suella Braverman was, would be a gift to the Labour Party. And I'm afraid to tell you that the Attorney General has, in fact, um, not made it through into the next round of um, ah. Conservative um, potential candidates. My wild pick there is a particular um, uh, politician that no one in New Zealand has heard of. Tom Tugendhat? Uh, no, the the Nigerian. Oh, Kemi, um, Kemi yeah. Bednock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's who's quite right wing in an extraordinary yes. fashion. Yeah. Yes, and says some some very you know um, uh, forthright anti woke things, mm. but does it from a, a background which makes it sort of interesting, and um, the idea of a black woman uh, conservative yeah. well, prime I... minister of, of Britain. Uh, it's whatever the views is, is quite some message if it ever gets there. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I, I this, this sort of strange bedfellows thing is I found myself um, becoming dangerously close to agreeing, agreeing with David Seymour this week. Uh, he, he, I thought he actually wrote a very good piece in the commentary in the Herald as a counterweight to a rather vitriolic piece that Simon Wilson had written calling him a racist or saying that he was a race a race baiter with his comment about an ethnostate. Now, I don't agree with David uh, Seymour on the ethnostate thing, and, and you know I've mocked him, you know, appallingly and ruthlessly on this, oh, we'll, on this we'll have to get him on the hoon yep. but i've been i was actually very impressed with his with his uh, commentary in the herald in response to that thing by simon wilson it made a lot of sense it seemed to me yeah david's a really interesting uh, character and then he's one of those politicians who knows how to get his point of view across in quite a charming and succinct way and also um he is able to um connect with people uh, with ideas that normally they wouldn't listen to. And he's one of the most effective uh, politicians uh, uh, currently around in Parliament. And he's one of these characters that, on the face of it, um, he's the, um, the girly swat who uh, is always coming out with the, um, the ideas you don't agree with. Hmm. But in the end, you sort of, um, you have some, some sympathy or empathy for him and eventually you start to listen. Uh, uh, and that's one of the reasons for his success at the election. And I think mm. come election time, particularly because the contrast uh, with um, both Jacinda Ardern and Christopher Luxon will be interesting. He is yeah. already presenting himself as the, you know, 
uh, straight down the line guy who cares about the ideas and will keep those slippery, um, the middle of the road candidates honest with some, you know, mm. tough, mm. tough ideas and thinking. And he obviously is aiming to get some of the soft national support, the ones who are a little bit worried, they're a little bit close to the center and bring them over and present himself as the, you know, the, the steel that can be put mm. up, up, up national um, spine uh, in government. Spine? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But no, it's interesting. I, 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 I've i often thought that it would be quite interesting to have an at um, Labour Party coalition, but then, of course, that was basically the Douglas Longy government. Well, this is the ironic thing, mm. is that the ACT Party actually came out of Labour. Mm. Uh, and there, there are some elements, uh, particularly some of the Roger Douglas stuff, which, you know, are actually quite socialist, you could say. Mm. And... Um, uh, that, that is, um, um, the, the sun is going out on. Sorry, on, on I'm just sitting, sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> One second. And you, what you're seeing, everyone, is Peter trying to get his life. That's his, little, his that'll be enough innovation here. Yeah. <laughs> movement. We we'll have to get a broom or something to wave next to the yeah. sensor. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I think he's he's going to make a difference in the election campaign, and I think the key thing. To, to make it a bit more competitive will be to see how the party Maori, Maori goes in extending its um, its appeal beyond a couple of seats and also whether top can uh, get a get a roll on. Some of the polls in the last couple of months suggest that top is, there's a bit of movement there. And uh, I think as we get closer to the election where some of the, um, I think tiredness with the both the main parties, mm. neither of which have aggressive or transformational policies where there's a lot of disappointment with the transformational talk from the Prime Minister, but no delivery. And and nationals, at the moment, they don't have any policies. They've got plenty of criticisms, mm. but no policies. Mm. And um, that was part it is, of the It is like a party run by theatre critics who never go to the theatre. <laughs> Good line. Good line. No, no, and you, can one, you can have one, it. You can have it. It's one of the reasons I was keen to um, try to throw some some, uh, I suppose you could call it um, curlies, curly ideas at people from a different place. Because, mm. as I mentioned at the bottom of the column, and in response to anyone who um, suggests I edge myself closer to the actual political world, I'm unelectable, unappointable, and unemployable. Yeah, but I'd still vote for you. Uh, yeah. Not on my own. And, um, uh, but I do have something I can do, which is ask some curly questions of people and throw things into the mix which yeah. no, you know, quote, sensible politician would um, uh, be brave enough to do. Or um, or in New Zealand, often when you've, when you've got a good idea, the problem is you're probably conflicted in some way or another. And also you have to think about your next your next job, uh, your next appointment, and uh, the Cory Lounge Society kicks in, and you're uh, unwilling to really put your head above the parapet. Whereas I can put my head above the parapet, and um, it doesn't have to. I don't have to worry about it being shot off because it's just me. I've got my own little train. Mm, mm. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, that was um, that was a fun series of articles I did this week, and I, I welcome the um, support from. Uh, paid subscribers so that I can do this sort of thing and appreciated too the um the feedback. Is it true I got. that Bill English dictates half of your columns? <laughs> no, no, no. He pays for 
No, no, um, uh, no, actually, you'd be, and I'm, I'm obviously not going to disclose who are subscribers, but um, I'm always um, thrilled to go through the list and see the breadth mm. of the backgrounds of the people who are subscribers. And just an FYI for all the, um, the subscribers who are on today, um, we've just gone over uh, the 2,700 Christ, mark. I've just paid. For, I've just paid for your dinner tonight. But uh, yeah, then you, you can buy the beers, all right? I, I think so. That's yeah. fair enough. That's a fair deal. Um, just over the 2,700 <laughs> paid subscribers, and we're just about at the 9,000 subscriber mark overall, which includes paid and free subscribers. So um, we are we are getting there, and um, I'd appreciate. Um, ideas from paid subscribers on the sorts of things that Jesus, uh, they don't, you don't want them to get above themselves Bernard oh I mean paying actually, for it's one thing actually contributing to it's a very dangerous well actually yeah. it really it's been really good this week to see the um activity in the comments threads mm -hmm. lots of really interesting ideas on angles to take the story ahead uh to challenge some of the things I'm saying but also to uh, um, mention um, other aspects that I hadn't thought of that mm -hmm. I needed to think of, and actually I've, I've really and, and I've also really appreciated the ability and the um, uh, collegiality actually mm -hmm. of the of the the tone of the comments, and it's one of the things I really enjoy about Substack, um, unlike some other um, social media where you've got an incredible amount of um, noise and vitriol. Yeah. We actually don't have that, and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Actually, vitriol would be a great name for a, for a new a new oil company that came in to you know push out <laughs> gull and everybody. I'm just I'm just going to go and fill up at vitriol. <laughs> Good one. Um, uh, the other thing I was keen to bring in today um, was climate change, um, not just because of the um, fresh declaration from all the leaders at the Pacific mm. Islands Forum. If I was, for example, from Fiji or from um, uh, Kiribati, if they turned up, or, um, the Cook Islands, to hear a prime minister uh, like Anthony Albanese mm -hmm. and Jacinda Ardern talk about a climate emergency, when at the same time um, uh, Australia is in the process of... Um, yeah, see, my audience needs me. Sorry, I managed to <laughs> turn it on that time. Well yeah. done. Um, they at least want to see me vaguely. Yeah, <laughs> the, the light shining off my pate. Yeah, ah, carry on. Um, so uh, to actually hear Anthony Albanese and Jacinda Ardern pledge a climate emergency it must have been galling, particularly when we know that, for example, this week China said they may actually give up on their ban on importing Australian coal. Not because they necessarily love the Australians mm, with mm. their coal. It's just that they're, they're really struggling to get hold of some Absolutely. inside China. And of course, have the same problem everyone else has got. Not quite enough gas or oil um, to... Um, well, Bernard, in, in last week's um, excellent spin-off, um, well, not excellent, I can't say it's excellent. Anne tells me it's excellent, which is kind of a... In last week's spin-off thing, I put in a package about... Uh, various elements of climate change and particularly um, what we're now seeing in Europe. I mean, it was, it was, it was ahead of it, but it was, um, you know, these extraordinary temperature um, bursts uh, in Portugal, um, Spain, going up into France, it will be 34 degrees in London this, 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 um, uh, this week. Um, you know, this is, and it's happening in uh, the United States, it's happening in Japan. 
I reckon the um, pendulum has already swung too far. And I was one of the things that made me think about this week, and, and I this just shows how North and South from. Uh, I read Jacinda Ardern's speech to Chatham House, her speech um, to Harvard, and her speech to uh, the Lowy Institute the other day. And in, and in one or other of them, she talked about going to the Tokelaus, where of course her dad was the the uh, whatever we call the High Commissioner, the representative there. And she was pointing out that a seawall that New Zealand had paid for to um, pre prevent the inundation of part of the coastline, particularly part of the coastline, I think, where there's um, cemeteries, was now being eroded very, very soon after it had been developed. And I mm. just have a feeling that we're not talking enough about adaptation. And I don't mean that as a council of um, council of fear or, or a council of despair, but adaptation is going to be absolutely critical. And we're just not talking about it adequately. I, I noticed this week there was uh, an interesting report by um, Tonkin and Taylor about the costs of remediating or let, letting actually um, parts of the coast in around the Hawke's Bay um, um, go, letting it, letting, it, letting it be inundated. And you know that is, that's going to happen. And they were talking about billions and billions of dollars of, of cost of what that's going. What even even allowing inundation is going to be a, a, isn't a cost free um, solution. So I, I think we're at a fairly critical point. Um, yeah, the the government is in the process of drawing up the climate change adaptation oh, yeah. act, which will address these issues of who pays for strategic withdrawal mm -hmm. from the coast, from uh, from floodplains and that sort of thing, and who pays? Because at the moment, what we're essentially doing is outsourcing these decisions to the insurance companies and the banks. And it becomes this, this game of um, pass the parcel. Who can mm -hmm. sell the batch faster before the insurer decides that it's uninsurable and therefore unbankable. Yeah, well, Bernard, as you're as you're about to see, I've just bought a waterfront property in Auckland for Christ's sake. You know, <laughs> oh, it's quite high up. Yeah, yeah, you should be okay. Yeah, I know, but you know, it'll, I can just see it toppling in in about five years. I'll be having to throw, <laughs> I'll be having to throw tires and old wrecked cars down down into the water to you know stop my new Build property from wall. falling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what what? And then um, the lights go out. Hang on. <laughs> Oh, well done. So uh, one of the I just have to do my own Mexican wave. So, so one of the really interesting things, and there's a couple of areas where I think are going to be the bleeding edge of New Zealand of this. Westport is going through it right now. So Westport obviously inundated twice in, in less than a year, mm. and is clearly large parts of it really. Mind are you, it is the most interesting thing that's happened in Westport in about forty years. Oh, this our Westport audience gone, Peter. Yeah. I mean, how are we going to get? How are we going to get to a massive audience if we just piss off yeah. our customers? Well, next, no, we can piss off people in Greymouth. Would you like that? Uh, yeah. Anyway, so there's a really interesting thing there where they they want to spend. $58 million on build, basically building walls all around mm. parts of the city, which they think are, are barely um, uh, savable, and getting someone else. Why don't New they Zealand just build roads? Them. Why don't they just build raised roads? That's what the Dutch did. You know, just build some nice raised motorways. And, you know, mind you, a motorway in, 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 um, in Westport's a bit ridiculous, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this no, is no, I think, so. I think we, could, we could call them dikes. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. You could. You could. Um, uh, and the other one is South Dunedin, of course, where they've got all sorts of problems whenever it floods. And what I think is going to happen over the next few years, because this Climate Change Adaptation Act is not going to go through mm. before the end of next year, really, uh, when, of course, it, at the moment, the polls suggest there's going to be a change of government. And 
then we get down to the business of deciding who pays. And what what I suspect will happen is that um, the property owners in all of these places will call for some sort of public subsidy, i.e. getting all the other taxpayers in New Zealand to pay for a um, strategic withdrawal uh, on the grounds that they didn't understand or didn't know about climate change when they bought their house. And, um, and there will be some who, you know, bought decades ago and mm. it wasn't even considered then. Or well, yesterday. Or yesterday, yeah. And, um, and but when that happens, that's also effectively a bailout of the banks and insurers who then will be able to um, offload their risk to the taxpayer of New Zealand. And there's only so many times you can do that because the amount of property that is exposed uh, over the next 50 to 100 years. Obviously, there are some that are exposed right now. So as you point out, Hawke's Bay, um, Westport, uh, South Dunedin, um, some, in, some places in Coromandel, some parts of the, uh, the Auckland um, Harbour. Uh, but the numbers are enormous. You know, we're talking upwards of 15% of New Zealand's um, residential property are in potentially vulnerable areas. And uh, at the moment, that's a couple of hundred billion dollars worth of property, which at, mm, at mm. no one in New Zealand will think that um, taxpay other taxpayers should subsidise for that. And if you're being a, a, a real uh, libertarian, um, schumpeterian, uh, creative destruction type, which I must say I tend to on occasion, um, then you'd say, let the chips fall where they may, and whoever was clever enough to work out their property was vulnerable and and also clever and fast enough to flick it on to some mug who hadn't worked it out, mm. well, um, at some point, the music has to stop and you're stuck with the parcel. And the insurers and the banks, too, should be the ones um, working very hard here to work out what particular area uh, is the most vulnerable and then communicating it. Mm. And, and I hosted a, a climate um, panel this week uh, in Wellington, which looked at this issue and found that um, we're actually lacking the data to hand on to the banks and insurers to really mm. get this going. Mm. And that's causing uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of issues. We're headed towards the end, um, Peter. I just wonder if you've got- The your, end of what, Bernard? Uh, Towards the end of the end of the end of the end of civilization as we as we know it, and and then the lights are the lights going to go lights. out, and I'll just be I'll just be, and then another thing. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I, somebody was very kindly mentioning the Azores High, which of course again was in my spin-off. You heard it here first last week in my spin-off uh, thing, which is what's causing this historic problem in uh, Portugal and Spain, and where you know the 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 rainfall in Spain is is definitely not on the plane, um, and it is um, causing them great deal, a great deal of problems. Yeah, there's places all over the world where these climate events and the fundamental shift in the climate is going to make them unlivable. Oh, we wanted to do two things, Bernard. We wanted to talk about about Abe as well because last oh, week yes, I yes. suggested that that Abe had possibly you know, was you know it was instant speculation on my on my part, and I suggested it might have been because of his um, changing the. the the Japanese role in defence, but of course it wasn't. It was. It would appear to have been entirely to do with the Unification Church, better known as the Moonies, and the um, uh, the young man who has acknowledged shooting um, Abe. Uh, his mother would appear to have squandered most of the family fortune, such as it was, on donations to the Unification Church. And what oh, that's wow. what that's really interestingly exposed is long-standing connections, particularly with Abe's father. 
to the Unification Church, which um, Sung Ming Yun, the uh, the founder of Unification Church, was a was a fearsome anti-communist, very much in favour of um, Korean unification. Uh, hence, hence, hence the name in a sense. And you know, he he's been extraordinarily politically effective. He's dead now, but I mean, the, the church has. Uh, and of course, like we know from other churches, tithing and sucking donations in is is one of its raison d'etre. But it's very politically influ influential. And if you remember. They own the Washington Times. Um, you oh, know, these, yeah. the, the Unification Church is around. You know, they're they're kind of around, and it's very interesting to see this coming out in, in Japan, where it's been a kind of known known secret uh, amongst the political class, but not really uh, understood more broadly or reported more broadly. A, and Abe was a, not a member of it, but they, you know, they were handy to have on tap for the it's conservatives. It's an extraordinary sort of uh, insight. Uh, and 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 um, phenomena in Japan, where mm. usually the Japanese and the Korean cultures are at odds and not particularly sympathetic to each other. Well, let's not go there. Perhaps um, no. You know, it's it's a you know there's there's a, well well in fact of course though, um, I'm just putting in an AP a very good AP explainer on the on the whole unification oh, church in China. Yeah, I mean the, the Abe was very very. I mean, of course, Abe was a bit of a revision, a bit of a. He was rather a revisionist about Japan, Japan's World War II history, uh, and of course that included the whole treatment of of Korea and Korean women in particular. Yeah. No, so the skateboarding dog burner this week. Yes, yes, yes. Is is I quite like it because you know there's nothing like a Tory MP to have boundless self-regard. Uh, and it's a headline in The Guardian, which is police were called after the home of Tobias Elwood was vandalised after the Conservative MP was alleged to have run over and killed a valuable Bengal cat, then drove off without stopping. <laughs> oh, my goodness, the Tories. It's such a great story. I mean, apart from everything else, the implosion um, of the Tory party into this uh, bag of fighting cat. Um, uh, yeah, bang, bangle, bag of dead Bengal cats, exactly. <laughs> They're fighting yes. like a bag of dead Bengal, Bengal cats. <laughs> there was another excellent one involving a Tory MP this week who, and, and this is, uh, I, I hesitate to say that because the Guardian treated it rather differently, but the Times uh, pointed out that the um, male MP was uh, run off, he ran his car off the road and, and, um, and hit a fence and ran away wearing a leather, leather miniskirt, lipstick and pearls. <laughs> Which, which definitely made you want to read further. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I just imagine being a political journalist in in Britain right now. You'd just be in heaven. I mean, well, you uh, wouldn't be if you were at the Daily Mail, because of course, you know, they're they're doing the stab in the backstory, and Boris Boris having been um, been uh, you know betrayed by traitors, because um, Paul Dacre is rather keen to become Lord Dacre. Paul Dacre is ah. the editor in chief of the Daily Mail. I'm Again. always I'm always amazed at how popular these these things are when they're so transparently um uh party political. i know when people could listen to could people people could read the kaka and listen to our podcast and be well informed but they choose to look at the sidebar of shame i saw an excellent sidebar of shame one today which was kim kardashian revealing what exactly she'd had um plastic surgery too and I, I decided not to read it and i decided to read your your uh, piece on psb on the public sector borrowing requirement instead excellent this is this is progress in the world peter bale and our um fantastic audience of supporters uh at the car car Christ, for god's sake finish before the lights go off 
<laughs> Will the lights go out again? Kakitiana, everyone. See you Thank later. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.